invite you to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, we're going to be looking at verses 38 through 50. Hear now God's word. John said to him, this being Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin who believes in me, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maim than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself unto us in such a perfect way, and we thank you, Lord, for this teaching of our Lord Jesus. And we pray as we would look into it tonight, that you would help us to understand it. Lord, that you would give us focused minds, that you would engage our hearts, and that you would indeed speak to us exactly what each one of us needs to hear tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. One of the most amazing things about our bodies is the immune system. This system is comprised of cells, tissues, and organs that, that fight germs in our bodies. Every single one of us here tonight is alive because of the immune system. And yet, in, in recent years, doctors have discovered what have come to be called autoimmune diseases. These are diseases that are actually caused by the immune system. The immune system, rather than fighting for the body, attacks the body. It targets healthy cells and, and it declares war on them and wages war 
against them. If I were to go through the list tonight of the 80 or so autoimmune diseases known today, uh, I guarantee you that some of you suffer from at least one of them. Some of you know the, the chronic debilitation that can come from having a body that has declared war on itself. It's a tragic thing when one member of the body wages war on another. And unfortunately, friends, this, this is something that often happens in the body of Christ. Uh, one member declares war on another. One group of Christians sets themselves against another. And this has debilitating effects upon the church. In the passage before us tonight, Jesus addresses this problem head on. He addresses what has often been called a party spirit. That is a divisive pride that sets itself against other Christians. We learn here that a party spirit contradicts Christ's call to cross-bearing discipleship. Christ is telling his disciples and he's telling us here that a party spirit, a divisive spirit, contradicts his call to cross-bearing discipleship. And Jesus confronts this arrogance in his disciples uh, by, by doing three things, essentially. He, he uncovers its irrational conviction its ruinous conclusion, and then he sets forth its gracious contrast. First, notice that this kind of divisive party spirit uh, is founded upon an irrational conviction. Jesus and his disciples here, they're on the road to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus has set his face like a flint to towards that city where he would be murdered. And he's told his disciples just prior to this passage that they too will bear a cross. That the road to discipleship is a road of suffering and self-denial. But the disciples are, they're not getting it. It, it, it hasn't sunk in. It, it hasn't registered. And so, so we find them just prior to our passage on the road to their master's death arguing with one another about who's the greatest. And Jesus, he's, he's so, so tremendously, astoundingly gracious. He, he just gently, gently rebukes them. And, and tells them, he, he reminds them that, that it's the servant of all who is the greatest. And then he takes a, a child in his arms and, and he says, verse 36, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus' instruction is convicting. The disciples are consumed with themselves. They're consumed with themselves. And, and Jesus is ultimately saying, 
forget about yourselves. You are to be a servant. And you are to receive and bless the lowliest and the least of my people. And this, this leads John to a confession, and that's where we come in our passage tonight. Verse 38, John says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. The disciples at some point had encountered a man who was doing mighty works in the name of Christ. Notice here that their concern is not that this man was not following Jesus. They're they're not concerned that this man was not a disciple of Christ. Their concern is that he's not following the disciples. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. And so because this man was not a part of their inner circle, not a part of their their privileged group, they they tried to bring an end to his ministry, to his work. And this, of course, was, was undergirded by pride. Their concern here is not Christ's glory. Their concern is themselves. We see earlier in this chapter, if you look at at verse 18, the the disciples had attempted to exercise a demon and found that they were unable to do so. A father had brought his demon-possessed son to them and, uh, and they could not cast it out. But here is this man. He's not even a part of of the 12. He's, he's not a part of this special privileged group, and yet he's casting out demons. They resented this man, fueled by a power hungry jealousy. They attempted to stop him. They didn't want to share the, the stage with anybody else, especially someone who rivaled their faith and ability. And John is here confessing this to Jesus. He's beginning to see how contrary his own heart is to that of a true disciple of Jesus. And how does, how does Christ respond to this? Look at, look at verse 39. Again, he's so gracious. Do not stop him, Jesus says. And then he provides them the reason why. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. In other words, Jesus is saying, one one does not perform a mighty work in my name only then the next minute to go on to reject and disdain me. If if this man is for Christ, if, if he's not against Christ and his disciples, then he is for Christ. And thus, the disciples should not be trying to stop him. Jesus shows the irrationality of the disciples' action here, of of the party spirit that was fueling this action. They are attempting to stop their own teammates. This is 
This is like a, a quarterback uh, getting, getting ready. He's, he's hiked the ball, and, and his defensive lineman turns around and, and sacks him. It doesn't make any sense. It's his own teammates. They're, they're supposed to be striving together for the victory. To hinder your own teammate is, is utterly irrational. And so, why would the disciples do it? What, what would be fueling this within them? Well, the, the reality is that they were consumed with themselves. And the reality is that we are often consumed with ourselves as well. I mean, how many times have you ever been jealous of a fellow brother or sister at harvest? They're more gifted than you. They're bearing more fruit than you. They're, they're esteemed and, and noticed more than you. And you resent them in your heart. You maybe wouldn't be so bold as the disciples to try to stop them in their ministry endeavors. I mean, that would, that would be slightly in, embarrassing. But you, you certainly wish that they would be stopped. Why? Uh, be, because they're, they're taking the, the attention that's supposed to be, be yours. Have you ever treated a member of this church as lesser than yourself because of their economic status, because of their vocation, because of their ethnicity, because of their education level? What about something like homeschooling? If you're not a part of the homeschooling crowd, you're not really one of us. You see how this, this party spirit, this divisive spirit can so easily creep into our hearts? None of us here are, are immune to it. But Jesus is showing us here that, that such a party spirit, it makes no sense. We are fellow Christians. We're on the same team. And we have the same mission. Jesus, having uh, explained the irrationality of a party spirit, he, he turns to its ruinous conclusion. He holds up this divisive pride in the light of eternity. And, and he wants his disciples and he wants us here tonight to see the devastation that such a party spirit leads to. He begins, however, on, on a positive note in verse 41. It says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Even the smallest act of kindness towards the Christian will not go unnoticed. Those who support, encourage, and bless their fellow Christians will be richly rewarded on the day of judgment. This is, this is what Jesus is setting before his disciples. Blessing. Blessing. And this, this ought to be enough of a motivation for us 
to die to our prideful sectarianism. But Christ goes on to speak of the curses that those will undergo who cause Christians to stumble. With the little child still sitting on his lap, Jesus warns in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, the word there is literally to stumble, it would be better for him if a great millstone was hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. A millstone was an incredibly heavy stone used in the first century for grinding grain. And when I say incredibly heavy, I mean incredibly heavy, thousands of pounds. Some say between three to 4,000 pounds. This was a massive stone. And, and, and Jesus is putting before us here a very graphic picture It would be like tying your car around your neck while someone drives it off of a cliff into a large body of water. What would happen? Well, it it would be inevitable that the weight of the car would drag you off of the cliff down into the water and you would certainly, no doubt about it, drown. You're done for and, and, and Jesus is saying here that it would be better for that, better for that than to cause one of his people to stumble. This is how serious rejecting or hindering our fellow Christian is. It leads to something far worse than the most graphic of deaths. Jesus then goes on to use three conditional statements to to really drive home this point. Verse 43, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 45, And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 47, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. What is Jesus doing here? Well, he's getting to the root of the problem. Why are we so prone to set ourselves against our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? It's our own sinful hearts. And thus, Jesus calls us to take drastic measures to put sin to death. While this certainly here applies to all forms of sin, the context makes plain that he is specifically dealing with a selfish sectarianism. This divisive spirit takes root in the heart and then it manifests itself through the body. We look at our brother jealously, coveting what is his. We speak to a sister harshly. We use our hands to break down what our fellow Christian is working so hard to build up. And Jesus is telling us here that in causing others to stumble, we actually stumble ourselves. What we think is advancing our cause is actually 
destroying us. And thus, three times, uh, Jesus calls us to dismember ourselves rather than continue in sin. Cut off your hand. Cut off your foot. Gouge out your eye. There are few things in life more precious than, than our eyes. My wife Tessa, she's deaf, and, and she has a grandmother who was, was blind from the age of 19 until her death. And, and Tessa has said many times that she would far rather any day lose her hearing than lose her sight. Sight is such a precious thing. And yet, Jesus is saying, if your eyes are causing you to stumble, it would be better to rip them out. It would be better to be blind. He's calling here for drastic measures to be taken against sin. And this, of course, is metaphorical language that he's using. Jesus is not saying here that we should literally be cutting off our hands or plucking out our physical eyes, but, but the point that he is making is that we should be ruthless, absolutely ruthless in putting to death sin, in mortifying our prideful hearts. And three times Jesus tells us why. Why should we take this so seriously? If we do not take such drastic measures against sin, Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms, we will go to hell. He says in verse 47, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There is eternal wrath awaiting those who are unfaithful to Christ. If you and I allow sin to dominate in our hearts, if we do not take extreme measures in our fight against us, there is a spiritual death awaiting us. Do we believe this? Do we believe what Jesus is saying here? There, there is a fire that will never go out a death far worse than drowning with our car tied around our necks. This is serious business. And this is not because our good works are the grounds of our salvation. We, we heard that this morning. We do not escape hell by our own deeds. But our good works evidence a true saving faith. They, they evidence that we've, we've truly been born again. There is a holiness without which no man will see the Lord, and Jesus is warning us of that here. There is an unquenchable fire awaiting divisive, hateful, self-focused, professing Christians. That's what Jesus is saying here. 
His words are, are strong. His words are sobering. But Jesus doesn't end with wrath. The final words of his teaching provide us with a gracious contrast to this prideful, divisive spirit. He calls his disciples here and he calls us to a life of other-focused love. Verse 49, Jesus says, For everyone will be salted with fire. What is Jesus talking about here? Commentators uh, scratch their heads and debate about this. This is the only place where uh, Jesus makes this statement in the Gospels. And I think it's, it's clear that Jesus is alluding to the Old Testament sacrifices. These animal sacrifices, which would be consumed in the fire of the altar, were to be accompanied with salt. God commanded in Leviticus 2.13 that with all your offerings you shall offer salt. Such salt was a sign of the covenant between God and his people. And in the same way, every disciple of Christ is called, just as those animal sacrifices salted with salt and laid on the altar and consumed in the fire, so too, as disciples of Christ, Jesus is calling us to sacrificially lay our lives upon God's altar. Or as Jesus just told his disciples in the previous chapter, we are to pick up our crosses and bear them as we follow our Savior. The fire here is, is not a fire of judgment. It's, it's a fire of purification. It's, it's a fire of trials which true discipleship brings. Jesus is not promising that a life of following him will be easy. We will be salted with fire. But it, but it is through this, through the altar, through the cross, that true life is found. Do you see the, the contrast that Jesus is, is setting up here? The pride of a party spirit seeks self-glory, but Jesus calls for self-sacrifice. Divisiveness is fueled by envy and jealousy, but discipleship is fueled by a passion and overwhelming passion for Christ's glory and for the good of his people. And such a, such a sacrificial life will be a salty life. Jesus, having referenced the ceremonial salt of the Old Testament sacrifices, now speaks of salt in general. Verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Salt was incredibly important in first century Palestine. In fact, a common Jewish maxim in that day was that the world cannot survive without salt. 
And that's because it was a preservative. And back then they had no refrigeration, so uh, they used salt extensively to keep food from going bad. It was a necessary staple in life. And thus it was a great tragedy if it lost its saltiness. Jesus is saying here that in a world that is, is literally rotting in the clutches of sin, believers, you and I are to have a preserving, life-giving influence in this world. This is why Jesus calls us the salt of the earth. And we are to take care that we don't lose our saltiness. Christ doesn't leave us to wonder what he means by this command because he gives another command which parallels the first. The end of verse 50, be at peace with one another. This really sums up everything that Jesus has been saying in response to John's confession in verse 38. He's he's tying it all up here with this call to be at peace. The saltiness of a sacrificial life is evidenced in peace with other Christians. The disciples had opposed this man who was exercising demons. And Jesus had told them, he's not against you. He's a fellow disciple. And thus, the the logical conclusion is, is that there would be peace between them. Peace denotes an absence of enmity. While Christians have many rightful enemies, they are to be at peace with one another. We are to love each other. We are to consider each other as more important than ourselves. The question is, can that be said of us here tonight? Is there anything in you less than peace between you and a fellow believer? Is there a divisive, party spirits in your heart? Are you a self-serving Christian? These are questions we need to seriously ponder. Is this in us? And if so, we need to heed the warning of this passage and be ruthless in putting to death our pride and our envy. There is a better way, friends. Christ sets before us a better way, a way of life, a way of joy, a way of peace. It is the way of the altar. It's the way of Christ. Our Savior did not come to be served, but to serve. He did not consider himself as more important than us. He has washed our feet He has died in our place, suffering the accursed death of the cross for you and for I. Perhaps the reason why you and I are so prone to this pride, so prone to divisiveness, 
is because we are so little acquainted with Christ in His grace. Our souls have been so little mastered by the humility, the meekness of Christ in the gospel. You'll recall that in in Paul's letter to the Romans, he spends 11 chapters expounding upon the soul-ravishing grace of God in Christ. And only then... After 11 chapters of grace and Christ and grace and Christ, only then does he say in Romans 12 verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in light of these great mercies, in light of this great grace, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Have you and I been so mastered by the truths of the gospel that we are being impelled to the altar, impelled to lay our lives down for the sake of Jesus and his church? I want to close in in light of this gospel grace with, with three exhortations that that flow out of our text tonight. First, be a servant of other Christians. There there are some in this room whom you struggle to love because of differences in lifestyle, differences in personality, differences in doctrine. Uh, You're more prone to set yourself against them Be especially diligent in loving these Christians. Go out of your way to serve them, to pray for them, to spur them on into greater Christ-likeness. Remember that it was when you were dead in your sin, the most unlovable of wretches, it was then that Christ loved you and gave himself for you. Second, rejoice in the gifts God has given other Christians. This one is particularly convicting for myself. If, if there is a brother who is more gifted than you, praise God. If a sister is bearing more fruit than you, praise God. God, wherever we see the grace of Jesus, we ought to be giving thanks. Do you realize what you and I are doing when when we resent the gifts and graces of God in another Christian? Realize what we're doing? We're actually resenting God Himself. This is His grace, these are His gifts. And if Christ is being exalted, if Christ is being magnified, then then we of all people ought to be most glad. I mean, hearts full of joy, glad that our Savior is being magnified, even if it be through another brother or sister. Third, 
Foster unity with other Christians, even those of different theological and ecclesiastical backgrounds. This is not a call to pursue unity at the expense of truth. We must hold fast to God's word. But we must also hold fast to our brothers and sisters wherever they may be found. We ought to not think of ourselves as being better than those in traditions that we disagree with. The only reason that you and I are here right now is because of the grace of God. And it is that same grace, it is that same grace that has saved countless Baptists and Charismatics and Dispensationalists. God has a people and He loves them and and we ought to be loving them as well. So let me just challenge you to to do something in in this next week. I want you to, to take a passage of Scripture. You can pick whatever passage you think fitting. Uh, a good one that's, that I've chosen is, is Romans 5, 8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Take a passage like that and write it on a note card. And over this next week, memorize it. And memorize it. Get, it. get it in your brain, etched upon your mind. And then having memorized it, meditate upon it. As you're in the shower, as you're driving to work, as you're waiting in the checkout line, as you're going to sleep at night, meditate upon it. Meditate upon it until your soul is utterly ravished by the stupendous, glorious, incomprehensible grace of Jesus. And once your soul has been taken hold of by the humble, meek grace of Jesus in the gospel, then I want you to try something. Try to hate your brother. Try to despise your sister. Try to be divisive. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you won't be able to. You will not be able to. You see, friends, the problem with the disciples and the problem with us, the problem with me, is that I am far too little acquainted with Christ and His grace. So let let me just plead with you to, to press on in knowing Jesus. This, this is the remedy. What, what is going to keep us from a divisive party spirit? It is growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, we thank you for your meekness that you 
went to the slaughter like a lamb, silent before its shears. You went about washing feet and serving and blessing. You, you considered others, Lord, the, the lowest, the least, the most sinful, as, as more important than yourself, so much so that you, you died for people like us. You bore the wrath of God for sins like ours. Oh God, we, we marvel at your grace. And we pray, O oh Jesus, that you would open our minds and our hearts and that you would help us to see you, to see you as you are, to commune with you as you are, that as we would grow in our knowing of you, that we would be increasingly delivered from our selfishness and our pride and our self-seeking, and that we would uh, grow, Lord, in a passion to see you magnified and to see your people built up wherever they might be found. Father, please work in us in this way by your Spirit tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we close tonight. We'll be singing in Christ alone.